0: to the RR Book Club. I think this is uh, book club number five, I believe. And James and I have bitten off a big one this time. Yeah. In many ways, I think this is the most challenging book we've read. And we are gonna be talking about Jeffrey Kripal's Authors of the Impossible.
1: Woo! Which
0: might be proved to be an impossible <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah. You, you know right. a
1: little bit about Craig Paul as, as an author. You, you've read a couple yeah. of his books. He's got like a comic book, I think about comic books, and then he's got this.
0: Yeah, so he's got quite a few books. Um, and he, I believe, studied religious studies at the University of Chicago. I think that's right. Okay. Um, which is, you know, hallowed ground for religious studies. And then he has gone out and he's kind of broke new ground where he is using the methodology of religious studies. or in, in a way, this book he's trying to he's suggesting we need a new methodology, but right. anyway, he's used that to look at um, paranormal phenomena, what he sometimes mm-hmm. calls the psychic, and also cultural phenomena that dovetails with the paranormal. So that's why he wrote a book about comic books, because that's really quite a good book, um, Mutants and Mystics, because he really gets into the biographies of some of these comic writers, and lo and behold, they're experiencing all this quasi-religious paranormal sure. Right. So I think, I could be mistaken, <laughs> this, but I think that Jeffrey Paul he teaches at University of Texas, Austin, I believe. I think he is one of the real celebrated figures in the world of religious studies today okay and he's got a couple of students that kind of make big waves themselves uh, one is eric davis who is not an academic but he does uh he just wrote a book on um terence mckenna uh philip k dick and oh. robert anton wilson okay um, so he's getting kind of an orientation methodology. You can see it from Crepaul, and then um, mm-hmm. Diana Pasulka, who's at, she is an academic and she's at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and wrote this very, very interesting book called um, American Cosmic, okay. which is sort of looking at the UFO phenomena through a religious methodology so that's very all okay. cool right there yeah but she also gets kind of like she she gets so close to the experience that it's it changed her in the course of writing the book so it's mm-hmm. it's academic but kind of
1: oh nice i like that personal too yeah yeah yeah. Personal, yeah yeah um cool so so he does really interesting <clears throat> stuff Yeah, it it seems to me like an interesting way to take religious studies instead of being like, well, let's just look at all the same old stuff, I guess, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. There's lots of stuff to be in mind there. But let's look at comic books, look at popular culture, let's look at UFOs, let's look at, right? All the sort of weird experiences that, okay, so in this book, his his sort of religious studies argument is that religious studies ought to take the paranormal seriously, more or less, right? Right. Put, put simply, ghosts, UFOs, fish falling from the sky—all these sorts of things ought to be considered religious phenomena. Um, but for historical reasons, there was this split where, you know, the paranormal was sort of segmented off into one area, and the religious sort of was segmented off into another area. And interestingly, like the mystic was segmented off again. There was some sort of split there, probably in response to like Darwin, et cetera. Um.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of um, religious methodologies that are. I had a teacher, Michael Williams, at the University of Washington, he said they were so problematic because they tended to explain away religion. Right. So some of the cruder forms would be St. Paul was an epileptic or something. Sure. Um, right. But then there's also, I think, part of what Craig Paul is doing too is. At least in America and Europe, with the decline of institutional religion, in that in that void arises the psychic, yeah, uh, and the paranormal.
1: Right, because those yeah. are phenomena that would have, at least at one point, I think, still outside of religious studies, would have been considered religious phenomena. That's right. Right, if you have some sort of visitation from beyond, right. Uh, you normally interpret that within your religious framework, right? That's right. Um, but religious studies sort of is more and more um, because it's in academia, because it's rational sort of discourse. It's sort of moving away from that sort of thing into scientific and mm-hmm. history, sort of more historical methods that sort of take yeah. all the take all the fun out of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, much like psychology. Right. Right. So he's arguing that we ought to take these things seriously. And he sort of does so by talking about four different authors. We get sort of comprehensive overviews of the work of uh, Frederick Myers, who was uh, instrumental in the founding of the Society for Psychical Research, which was like, I don't know, Victorian era Ghostbusters or something. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right. And then William James. Ping ping, ping. (laughs) ping-ping. Don't cross the stream. Yeah. If if you were a medium or you saw a ghost or something, they wanted to talk to you and they wanted to sort of sort these stories out and see if there was any scientific basis by which they could discuss. And they were caught
0: up in the wave of the spiritualist phenomena, which is itself this kind of movement away from religion towards something that was huge.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. And we've we've, we've read a couple of books that sort of talk very much about that, Occult America and even um, Strange Frequencies, very much touched on that stuff, right? Yeah. So that's Frederick Myers. Then he moves on to Charles Fort, who he calls like a collector of anomalies. He sort of digs through newspapers and uh, (laughs) looks for weird stories, fish falling from the sky. Um, I don't know what they all are, but there's like UFO uh, experiences too. He's sort of the first ancient alien theorist. Said, but he didn't want to go very far before. back. Well, that's true. He he didn't want to take uh, experiences before what was it, eighteen hundred? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, he had a date. Where it was like anything past. He's not going to study the Bible. He's not going to study ancient texts. He's going to look at newspapers, recent newspapers for him, and say this stuff is still happening and it doesn't fit into our understanding of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Then he moves on to um, Jacques Vallee, who's like the cigarette-smoking man from X-Files, essentially. He's like the guy who works for the government and knows everything that the government knows about UFOs. (laughs) Or Mm -hmm. most of it, right? He Mm -hmm. worked for US government, a French guy, worked for US government, studying UFOs, worked one floor up from um, the remote viewing people. Yep, Stanford Research Institute. Yeah. Um, A founder of the internet, ARPANET. Right, very interesting. A Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and he has sort of inter- a very interesting take on like the UFO phenomenon and what it means, which I think we'll probably get into. And then he ends with uh, Bertrand Mehus. I think. Is I don't know have it? either. Mehus, yeah. let's just
0: call it that.
1: Okay. Um, who also is into the UFOs, but also into animal magnetism, and sort of has this sort of critique of culture and how it sort of moved away. Sort of from magnetic phenomena into its current sort of way of thinking, right? Maybe you should break down magnetic phenomena. Oh, I'm going to do my best and then you're going to tell me how I'm wrong. So <laughs> there's um, Mesmer. Know, Mesmer, yeah, thank you. The guy in France, it's Mesmer, he sort of figures out that there's this connection between all living things and that can be manipulated between people. So this is sort of like the beginnings of hypnosis. Although hypnosis is a step sort of towards science from mesmerism, Uh, mesmer is like manipulating the animal magnetism, which is like this energy between people um, in order to make people suggestible, but also to bring out sort of latent potentialities in their spirit, right? And there's some interesting stories in here of like someone going under hypnosis or into a, a magnetic state and then being exhibiting like um, clairvoyance or psychic powers in different ways, able to diagnose diseases, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of animal magnetism. Hypnosis is sort of like the technique without any of the, any of the problematic experiences. (laughs) Just going to focus on, you know, your symptoms and help you stop smoking and sort of tames tames that sort of technique. And then it actually becomes psychoanalysis
0: in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. It shows how psychoanalysis, despite Freud's uh, fear and protest to the contrary, they really did not avoid, what did Freud call it, the mud, the cesspool of occultism or something. Right. They (laughs) They really haven't avoided it. Right. All right. So, how do you want to proceed? Should we break each of these guys down a little bit,
1: or before we, I think we should, because I think that's where the, the fun stories are, right? Yeah. But I kind, I kind of want to talk about his big thesis about what an author of the impossible is. Hard um, to get your head around that. Yeah, and then I kind of want to complain about it a little bit. That's fine. <laughs> Please. Right. So I got. To... Bless you. Um. <laughs> So his big thesis is like, we want to study, we want religious studies to kind of take these experiences seriously, but we, in a broader way, we want sort of everybody to be able to understand these things in a different way. Um, we need a worldview that's not religious, that's not science, but is some third category beyond both, maybe incorporates both, but it's kind of beyond both. Um, and what that is, we'll probably pick apart as we talk. But the way we get there, or one of the ways we get there is through authors of the impossible. People who write about, um, well, he says this about authors of impossible. There's like three, three ways that you're an author of the impossible. One is that you write about weird stuff. You write about ghosts, you write about UFOs, you write about angelic visitations, you write about little people, you write, whatever it is. Second um, is that he says this, uh, these are, are authors who make the impos- these impossible things possible through their writing practices, which is a statement I got very excited about, but he didn't mean what I thought he meant. I think what he means is um, by writing about weird stuff in ways that seem rational and logical, um, you sort of shift people's perspective on the world um, and they become more open to the reality of weird things. Mm -hmm. So if I'm very strict and rational and anything weird, I just sort of ignore or suppress. I read maybe um, Frederick Meyer, who is taking a very scientific view of um, like the appearances of ghosts. And maybe I'm open and a little bit more open to this idea. And those things become a little bit more possible than they were, or it's most successful. I become a believer and now they're possible for me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's through that kind of um, rhetorical intervention that authors of the impossible um, shift the paradigm, right? Uh, And then the third way he says is, um, paranormal phenomena are in the end like the act of interpretive writing itself, primarily semiotic and textual processes, which I think what he means is that reading and writing involve interpretation. I'm really gonna dumb this down, but reading and writing involve interpretation and being abducted by a UFO involves interpretation right? Like if you wake up naked in a cornfield with a chip in your neck uh, and you remember a beam of light, then you've got some interpreting to do. (laughs) Like, am I nuts? Was I drunk? Am I nuts? And I was drunk, but something happened. Is this real? Like you have to sort of do a lot of processing to interpret what that was. And even external observers have a bunch of interpreting to do because you got this weird, crazy naked guy, but you also have like um, air traffic radar that says something was there and you've got a weird metal in this guy's neck. What are you supposed to do with these things? They don't seem to be, they don't play by the rules of ordinary logic, right? Right. So there's interpretation to do there and there's interpretation to do in writing. And so by writing about those things, you're sort of engaging in this, you're engaging in those experiences in a kind of uh, potentially transformative way like the lady you were talking about who started studying UFO stuff and became changed by it. I think he would say like, that's, that's it. That's an author of the impossible. You're like right, making right. those impossible things possible in the way that it's also real for you, right?
0: Right. And maybe you start perceiving things a little bit differently. Right. Right, right.
1: yeah. So that's authors of the impossible. Um, and each of these four guys is like doing that process in some way, right? They're shifting the goalposts of what we think is reality Um, I mean, they're mostly ignored, (laughs) right? He's trying to resurrect them. And so in his way, he's trying to make their work stronger by boosting the signal. The piece that bummed me out was that, you know, he says, um, make these impossible things possible through their writing practices and writing practices like single signals really strongly to me as like, um, writing processes. Like, what do you actually do when you sit down to write? Um, he talks about kinds of interpretation or kinds of analysis, but, um, from, you know, I'm in a PhD program, I'm studying, uh, recovery writing and writing in general. I'm very interested in what happens to people when they write, right? Like when people sit down to write four-step inventory, or when they sit down to write, um, a letter that's really important to them, like what kinds of things does that act of writing do to them and how is it transformative for them? Um, and in my research, I have come across paranormal phenomena in people's writing practices. So people will sit and they'll have like, what would be called an automatic writing experience where the hand moves really quickly. Uh, and then when they read what they've written, it's sort of shocking or surprising. It's true. It's helpful in ways they couldn't have predicted. Right. Um, so that I, I sort of thought he was going there when I first read that. I thought he was like, oh, this is, this is my stuff. Right. Which is when you write you can actually sort of invoke these kinds of experiences Mm -hmm. or some people can tap into that somehow Mm -hmm. right in the act of writing um and he does there are a few mentions of that sprinkled throughout he mentions philip k dick um gets shot by a laser beam from a extra natural intelligence and scrambles his brain and he suddenly the only comment is like it changed his writing practice (laughs) that's all he says about well how like what did he do before and how is it different and you know what I mean? Um, he talks about um, Mayhust sort of mentions this. Valet, he says, has had some mystical experiences in writing, while writing, but he doesn't say what those are. Um, and there's one more. Oh, uh, my favorite was Robert Louis Stevenson who would, who would sort of ask the brownies or pixies or whatever before he fell asleep to give him a good story in his dream. And then he would fall asleep and the pixies would act out a story and he would write it down and he'd tell it. <laughs> Right. So that, that's para, to me, that's a paranormal writing practice. That is like, how do you explain? What is that? How do you explain that within what we know about writing? Um, and I kind of like, if we ever do get to talk to him, I would kind of like to push him on those experiences. Like,
0: well, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're right on his edge. With yeah. Because, right. Um, if you do read Mutants and Mystics, he has, he uses, I think, Philip K. Dick. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of examples, but they're examples of, you know, after Dick experienced Vallis on 2374. Yeah. In his writing, he started noticing that people and, and, and things started appearing in his life that he had written about decades before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a famous story about um, Alan Moore, who'd done the comic book Constantine, and Alan Moore swears mm-hmm. that he was in a pub and Constantine came up to him and said hello and and seemed to beckon him to follow him out of the pub. And Moore said he was so freaked out, he didn't follow him. (laughs) Um, And then there's another one that jumps out. Oh yeah, the guy, uh, Planet of the Apes apparently was a comic book before it was a movie. Okay, wow. And the author had done a comic where there was a panel um of a hooded figure breaking into someone's house and mm-hmm. hurting them and one day years later that author heard a noise went downstairs and there was a hooded figure in his wow. house that shot him Jeez. so he does cry does kind of you okay. know yeah but that, it always seems that stuff, anyway, seems to have this weird, like precognitive or mm. precognitive, but like you were writing the future into existence.
1: Right. Which right. Is, There's certainly a correspondence between what later happens and what I wrote back here. Right. It could co- cause that in some weird way or indicated your, it. You're yeah. it. Or Yeah.
0: But definitely not normal
1: space and time. Right. Right and in act, creative acts, right? Within this sort of imaginative space of writing or whatever, um, this is inventive space where you're trying to make something or figure something out it's sort of is very close to that kind of experience for some people at least. So I like that. And uh, this book is like not quite there, but it sounds like maybe his previous one was more there. Here he's sort of more pushing for this, like because they wrote these books and because they fought in the ways that they did it helps us move the move the window of what we're willing to believe. I, and I think, I think that's where he's going. Certainly moves the window for the authors themselves. Right. Maybe
0: the, those authors anyway, are all about moving the
1: window. Right. Cool. Yeah. So maybe we should pick them apart a little bit, the different, the four different guys.
0: Sure. Um, well, Frederick Myers, as we said, was uh, what was it? The Institute of Psych- Psychical Research, yeah. Society of Psychical
1: Research. And I think. Oh, yeah, uh, SPR, Society for Psychical Research, yeah.
0: And what a lot of you know, our twelve steppers should know is that William James was indeed a colleague of his, and William James apparently was involved with this organization to some degree. the last 30 years of his life Hmm. so it was not a passing interest it was right and i do think maybe we should just give a little shout out to james here because he he does he does not want he's not looking for resolution in his thinking james so he's very 40 in that sense he wants to be as wide. i think this is the the impossible gesture he wants to be as wide open to mm-hmm. Ambiguity and, and right. breadth of experience and contradiction and so on. So, in that way, I think Kripal is very much a Jamesian. Uh-huh. Um, but what really jumped out at you about Mr. Myers?
1: Um, so, well, it's it's interesting that you know the whole group was in, uh, involved in the scientific study of this kind of phenomenon. Um, uh kripal talks about this as psychical rather than paranormal he makes a distinction of like when you're doing psychical research you're trying to take the super weird phenomenon and put them into a scientific register he calls it like talk about it scientifically and study it scientifically yeah. paranormal then is a step beyond that which we'll get to in a minute with the next author but I liked that kind of thinking makes very practical. Like let's go study ghosts. We'll be skeptical of them and see what they are. Um, He invents the term telekinesis, which is his sort of explanation for a lot of these phenomena, which is interesting. Like there's a bunch of stories in here of um, waking up and seeing your brother doing something. And then in the morning you get a telegram that says your brother's dead. Right. And he died. I don't know. He's, he's he got wet clothes on when you see him. And then he's, turns yeah. out he was drowning or he's singing a song and it turns out, I don't know, he was singing a song when he died or whatever. Yeah. Um, and Myers doesn't explain that through like, well, the ghost went and visited him. He sort of says that there's at a subconscious level, we're all connected in ways that we can't really access. And in these traumatic moments, um, that can be kind of ruptured and you can have this connection and that's telekinesis right that's fascinating
0: it's kind of union yeah Yeah. right yeah right we only have one collective unconscious that we're
1: all tapped into right Um, okay yeah then my my favorite you got something go ahead no go you go ahead i just gonna go to my like My favorite story out of this which was about lenora piper right which you've talked about before is like the the one medium that couldn't basically could was never debunked and had some really really impressive track record although there's some pretty funny details about her in here which is that like um when she first starts talking she starts talking as like a quote indian girl named chlorine and then as sir walter scott who says that there's monkeys on the sun (laughs) So she's got like totally wild, weird things, which are not debunkable, by the way. You can't like say.
0: (laughs) Not yet anyway.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then, but then she like manifests this uh, spirit of a a local guy who died a couple weeks ago who promised to come back and make trouble if he he did die and there was an afterlife. Uh, And then they introduce... 150 people to, I'm sure over like many sessions, but introduced 150 people to her as this guy. And she responded to and acknowledged only the 30 who that guy actually knew. Right. Which is like, okay, monkeys on the sun. But then that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like really weird and shocking and impressive. Right.
0: It is. And it introduces that element that's going to play big in here, which is the absurd. Yeah, right. The phenomena is always seems to be accompanied with patented absurdities <laughs> that really challenge you even to take the more credible things seriously because of the absurdity seems to discredit it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's actually, what does he say about that in the beginning? He says... uh Oh, the paranormal phenomenon speak across a gap between the conscious, socialized ego and an unconscious or superconscious field—whatever that means. This gap demands interpretation, and makes—this and is the thing—and makes any attempt to interpret such events literally look foolish and silly. Yeah. So, like, there's there's a thing you experienced, and there's your whole worldview, and they don't they don't fucking go together at all. No. But you so you have to interpret it. And because you have to, and because there's a huge gap, you look like an idiot.
0: Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting because a big theme in this book is he's really talking about a methodology or hermeneutics, he would say, that is consciousness and culture. Uh-huh. And right. so this consciousness is this realm of super consciousness or whatever. Right. That, that um, you know, cuts through everything into a person having an experience who's caught in an interpretive dilemma. Uh And yet that interpretive dilemma is always going to have this, something absurd or an impossible resolution or, you know, where's the physical evidence? Well, we we have these hairs (laughs) or you you pass the lie detector test. Right. But
1: it never adds up.
0: Yeah. It never goes beyond that. Right. He's asking, why is that? You see, he's what I like about this is he's not saying, you just need to get more more and better evidence. He's saying, no, 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 no. let's just stop where we are. Every time yes. this happens, we seem to get this. What
1: is uh-huh. this? Right. Right. Yeah, it's never, it's like by design, and this is jumping ahead a little bit to valet. Yeah. But it's almost like by design, it's, it's, it's there to fuck with whatever worldview we've got. It's like purposely, maybe like conspiratorially put in place to not allow you to interpret it, right?
0: But using like really extreme humor and sometimes really extreme terror, yeah, you know, really like, but not not lending itself to the
1: rational, that's for sure. Right, right. Or the religious, which is what he'll get into, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't... It doesn't totally fall into religious uh, belief and it doesn't totally fall into, or at least he wants to make that argument, totally fall into science. Not fully assimilatable by either.
0: Right. Although he does want to resurrect the term sacred, which he Uh feels has been prematurely banished from religious studies because of this numinosity, the awe of it. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, that's the, like the primary piece is this. We don't understand. We don't know what to do. I'm like, yeah.
0: I'm never gonna be the same.
1: Right, right. This is interesting because to some extent we've experienced something paranormal when we recover. Oh, fuck yeah. Right? We have some kind of experience. It may not be an a isolated experience like, like St. Paul getting knocked off his donkey and seeing angels or whatever. But um, it's something like that, right? And it might be spread out or it might be focused, but we have some kind of experience where we're radically changed in ways that we can't fully explain. And we too are caught in this interpretive dilemma, which some people do take to a religious register. They say, oh, yeah, well, this is just Jesus or something. And I'll just go to the Jesus people and that's all tidied up now, right? That's the majority of the people. Right. They, or they take it
0: into a, a very strict big book register. Right. Which you
1: sort of becomes its own experience. religiosity.
0: Yeah, I think you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but but, <laughs> but we did get really confused right away. Like, wait a minute, it doesn't happen to everybody. Right. Uh, my attempts to explain it seem somewhat violent to other people's experience. Right. I, I seem to have seem to have led to a huge temptation of me judging other people for not having
1: experience right it just you know just like sets up all this shit immediately yeah. and where yeah. did it come from and why did i have it and how come i didn't know before and i did other things and that didn't happen and what yeah. how come when i try to communicate it it doesn't doesn't always go it doesn't always take why don't okay. i can explain it to people and they'll they have eight different opinions about what i just said it's like you're caught in that sort of foolishness right yeah. away right yeah.
0: Although we're in a more acceptable register than UFOs abducted.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I mean we could if we were explaining it as an abduction phenomenon, like, well, I w- wrote my inventory and then I was abducted by UFOs and now I'm sober. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or I, I couldn't write my inventory and then I was abducted by UFOs. I finished it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like well, I think that's a William James thing. I think that's part of our debt to William James is his pragmatism that comes across in the Big Book. Is it's like we're not going to tell you what this means. It doesn't matter what it means. Don't even talk about what it means. Or like, like it doesn't matter. How, like the causality of this is not important, or the actual factors that made it happen. It's like, did you get better? Focus on that, right?
0: right. That's, that's kind of the that's the truth criteria and quotation
1: marks. Right. Right.
0: So, on page 74, he just does this thing that I think is, you know, kind of a, you pass it if you didn't, um, weren't looking, but yeah it gives a sort of methodological thing down at the bottom of the page. He says, if a coincidence then is a set of two events that appear to be related, but for which no obvious causal connection can be found, Comparison is the act of lining up numerous such coincidences until a hidden pattern can be posited and a story intuitive.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's
0: crucial crucial to understand here that comparison is not necessarily about identifying causal mechanisms, although it certainly may lead to this as in Darwin's comparative observation about morphological coincidences, et cetera. What comparison is always about though is identifying meaningful connections between apparently separate events or things, that is between seeming coincidences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's what leads into telepathy.
1: Right, so they, yeah, this is still about Myers, wow. Yeah. So they gather, what part of their thing was like they posted an advertisement or something saying, send us your ghost stories, send us your weird experiences. And- Thousands and thousands and thousands of letters from Rational England or whatever, and they sift through them and you know vet them to some degree, and then have a set that they feel are fairly confident in and investigate them. And that's the comparative work that they were doing, right? Is right. this ghost story and that ghost story and this experience and that precognition and and what what then what what is there something to be known about that, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: And what's the pattern? Right. And watch the... So I just did an interview with a guy who had a near-death experience, pretty dramatic, He's the third interview I've done. And like the other two, all three of them said that in the wake of the experience, they did not talk about it hmm. for years, literally years. Mm-hmm. Maybe their partner or something, but they were basically forlorn and afraid to talk about it yeah. or fear of being misunderstood. Sure. And then for a bunch of reasons, there's all of a sudden now we're in a time where they can talk about it because there's a community of people they are literally, they think, millions of people who've had these right. experiences. And now they can start doing the comparative method. Right. Um, of course, the comparative method to me is always so interesting because it's you're looking for red threads of, of similarity, but it's the differences that are often really telling.
1: Right, right. Um, yeah, if you're too... Right, you could definitely say, "Oh, all this data lines up, so I'm ignoring everything else." Right, really missing out on the whole thing,
0: right?
1: Yeah. But but it makes it, but it brings it into the realm where it's reasonable now, right? Right. I've got forty-seven thousand testimonies that all say X. More communicable, yeah. Right. Sure. Then, oh well, it seems like X might be true.
0: Yeah. All the people
1: that came back were were wish they hadn't.
0: Right, or it's bad for a while. You know, right, it seems to be more. Right, right. And some people go to hell, and other people see Jesus, and other people don't see anything at all, and or any kind of recognizable being at all. And
1: you know, what is all that? Yeah, there's also a lot of like viewing your body from the outside,
0: viewing your body, going on trips through time and space.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I think we, I think we'll be looking at some more of that down the road. <laughs> Do you want to move on to? Yeah. Yeah. Frederick. I mean, that's a good transition to Charles Fort, who's all about the comparative method. Yeah. Collecting weird stories from newspapers and then saying, well, here in Arizona, there's a story about rocks that move by themselves. And then over here in Papua New Guinea, there's a story about rocks that move by themselves. I'm making those places up, but he had some kind of story like that. And like collecting as many stories as he can in that sort of category and then. Not really for the purpose of deciding what they are, but for sort of sticking his finger in the face of everybody else saying, See?
0: Oh, yeah. Like, reality
1: isn't what you thought.
0: And he's such an eccentric character. So he's this guy who's, by all accounts, doesn't take very good care of himself. Right. Um, he was not financially well to do until he got a couple small inheritances. He literally would spend his days in the libraries looking for this stuff, both in newspapers and in journalists, journals. Um, he's taking the journalistic approach to being an author of The Impossible. Yeah. There, there's also the first person testimony approach. Um, there's also the science fiction approach. So he's your journalist. So yeah. he's taking all this stuff. And. But he is willing, you know, like James, he's willing to come to some tentative
1: conclusions.
0: Um, And the thing that I thought really interesting was his his notion of the three dominants.
1: Yeah, right.
0: The sort of theory of history that he has. Yeah, so he has the dominant of religion. Yeah. Which he's pretty... Overall, I would say he's fairly negative about it.
1: Does not like religion no. <laughs> safe, to say. safe to say he grew up with a fairly abusive father who i think was also very religious and instilled this harsh religiosity in the poor children And uh, that must have left a bad taste in charles's mouth
0: it did and so he really thinks that it's about uh social control um moralism right Uh, In its extreme forms, it leads to killing witches and the Inquisition and brutality. Right. Right. And he would say, we're lucky to be past it. And then the second dominant is the dominant of science. Well, and he would say, I I suppose he would say that's still the present dominant. Right. Um, And he's a little more charitable about it. Although... He does talk about a scientific priestcraft that's not so different than the religion in that it keeps saying, thou shall not. And what he means is thou shall not think this way right. or seriously entertain this phenomena. Right. And, and so he's, he's also seeing that it's um, it's got its limitations. Right. But he does seem to believe that there's enough um, anomalous phenomena and even science itself uh, like quantum physics is finding its way, it's gropingly finding its way towards what he will say is the, what is he called? The final dominant or the third dominant?
1: Uh, Yeah, intermediatism. I think is the right. end of the day for it, right?
0: Um, the new dominant, we'll call it. Yeah. Um, let's see, what would you say
1: about this? It's a little fuzzy what intermediatism would be because it's sort of like, well, it's not religion and it's not science and it's sort of just this, I guess, a radical openness to whatever phenomena present themselves.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's consistent. I think Kripal has taken that with him. So we seem to be in a false binary of science or religion. There's this thing, this, yeah. this new paradigm that wants to be known. And that this phenomena, the anomalous phenomena, is poking at that, right? Yeah, it's pushing us towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Vallejo have. Strange things to say about
1: that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like a roller coaster of things to say. Yeah. So, like, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. So, for example, if fish rain from the sky in New Jersey and everybody saw it and it's in the newspapers um, and it's like several other experiences of falling seafood in other places throughout the last hundred years, um, the religious dominant would say, well, that's—I mean, from his perspective, I think the religious denominator is basically Christianity. But yeah. so it would—it would say, well, that is an act of God; it's a miracle, or it would say that's the work of the devil and witches, right? It was sort of instead sort of this binary idea, things fall into one camp or the other. Um, that is specific to Christianity, but it's sort of like within the worldview that we have, we have to interpret it that way, right? Science would say. Well, um, either at, at its most generous would say, we don't have any explanation for that. And uh, so we can't, but eventually we'll be able to explain it through physical terms. Um, but more likely it would apply the tools that ARIES has to say, everybody's crazy, or there's this sort of mass hysteria or someone is lying or et cetera, right? And sort of minimize or deny, or is a sort of, Collective daydream or something that people can have. It's like going to go psychological or it's going to go into denial and skepticism. Yeah. Um, or it's going to sort of say, well, maybe there was like a tidal wave and a bunch of fish washed ashore and people made up this. Yeah. Right. Was some, right. Yeah. Weather, meteorological right. phenomenon. Right. Right. There's, here's an explainable thing and here's people being people and we're going to mix those things together and push it yeah. away. And intermediatism or indeterminatism. I'm not sure which one it is, is like, this doesn't fit into any known categories. This is a total anomaly and we have to treat it as such, right? The philosophy
0: of the hyphen, he says. Yeah,
1: Yeah. oh, right. He has a bunch of terms that are like life hyphen death and I don't know, money hyphen broker. I don't don't remember what they all are, but there's a bunch of like uh, binary ideas that he sort of smushes into unities, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so he's also saying he does seem to have this uh, sense that there's, uh, what does he call that? Sargasso or something? There's this realm that's just, he doesn't, I don't know if he speaks in terms of dimensionality, but um, there's this, this other realm that interfaces with ours, mm-hmm. and uh, some of, sometimes it breaks through, and there are other people he would say that develop something like wild talents. It's
1: oh, that's right. That He's got a whole book of that name, right? So
0: they are somehow people that are because of their relationship to this other side, they have these talents that are actually, they affect things here. Right. Um, And so he does have this, he goes, um, 132, he says, uh, there is a fortune teller in every womb. Um, we called these evolving magical powers gifted in the womb, wild talents by which he meant something that comes and goes and is under no control, but that may be caught in trains. Right. You look frozen.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm frozen in thought, not in Zoom. In wild, <laughs> I have wild talent. I was thinking, I was started transitioning in my head to like comparing Myers and Fort in terms of their role as authors of the impossible, whereas Fort is like an author of the impossible because he takes weird impossible things and makes them scientific. Fort is like taking weird impossible things and like leaving them weird and impossible, like signaling them out and then amassing them, um, and insisting on them. Yeah, that's
0: right. And he has some of the stories are just fantastic, you know. The 12-year-old servant girl who things just burst in flames around
1: her. Right, oh, that's right. There's all these pyrokinesis stories. Yeah,
0: 12-year-old Willie Bose was similar. He could set things on fire with his glance.
1: Yeah, I met a guy like that in Maine. Did I tell you that? Beg your pardon? I knew a, I knew a guy like that from N.A. in Maine.
0: Are you serious?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't see him do it, but he, I saw him do this. <laughs> His name, uh, well, I, want, I guess I should keep him anonymous, but he, uh, I saw him one day in the Rexall drugstore and there's one of those like um, put in a quarter and turn the crank and out comes like a tat- temporary tattoo or like a sticker yeah. or something, right? And he was sitting there with like this fistful of quarters and his girlfriend and they were putting them in and he would say like, uh, what, did, what do you call it? Like a ring pop and he'd turn the thing boop, and a ring pop would come out and put a quarter in again <laughs> he to go temporary tattoo and temporary tattoo would come out and he was just doing this like he was just spending every single quarter protecting every single one like over and over and over again he told me that he had experiences of like being so mad that every candle in his house lit including the ones in the drawers um that like he was screamed and a cat ran by and the cat burst into flame like he had experiences like that which I don't know, when you hear stuff like that in meetings, you're always like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> but I did, I did. I witnessed the, his like weird uncanny ability to predict, to predict novelty items from a vending machine.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> not to get too, too weird.
1: Yeah. I once had a, I was able
0: to do this. Mm-hmm. There was a woman who I was attracted to. And she would put a quarter into the machine and it gave you M&Ms. Yeah. And I could close my eyes and I could pick up M&M out of her hand and tell tell you what color it was. Whoa, there you go. And I did it every time (laughs) until I finally slept with her. And then I couldn't Uh, do it anymore.
1: Oh, that tells us everything we need to know about how that power works. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty wild. So,
0: I don't think we should leave Fort until we talk about his sense that we are being fucked with, and that we
1: might actually be cattle. This is the first, like, iteration of, like, ancient alien theory, right? That the UFO phenomenon is real, uh, people are seeing red objects in the sky, that means we've been visited, and he has some sort of thing that's like, and it's been going on for a long time. This is, I guess, he said he wouldn't talk about phenomena they're ancient, but he sort of posits this contemporary phenomenon back into the past and says that, yeah, we've basically been, I don't remember, was it for, not for food, but for some, like we've been engineered by this, by this force.
0: Yeah, I mean, he says, uh, he goes, Fort seems most convinced of the alien invasion thesis and in the subsequent demonic theory of religion. The two are connected in his mind we have submitted to our own colonization mm. and through the very mechanism of our deepest belief and most heartfelt piety, no less. We are thus colonized from within." And he writes, this is for angels, hordes upon hordes of them. I think that there are out in the interplanetary space, super Tamerlanes at the head of host of celestial ravagers. I should say, we're now under cultivation that we're conscious of it but have the impertinence to attribute it all to our own nobler and higher instincts. Right. So this is sort of a matrix matrix matrixy Gnosticism where there are these higher beings that are messing with us and have got at least some of us believing that they are benign
1: right but he doesn't seem to think that they are because we've interpreted them in this religious register and sort of internalized all these experiences or the lore around them as like our path in life or the thing that works in the world in reality. and
0: reality to point out like in india the Brahmanical cast the possessors of the esoteric knowledge mm-hmm. use that to dominate all the other castes right so, even as we're being dominated by these beings,
1: their representatives on earth are dominating. Right, sure. Like the high ranking people in any Christian church or whatever, right? Same way. So, Fort, you know, he's- um. That's a pretty deep like theory. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Reading of religious history, right?
0: Right. And it's also, you know, it kind of smacks of Lovecraft a little bit, mm-hmm. where with Lovecraft, these old gods
1: are horribly indifferent to us. Right. Yeah. 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 And we've turned it into this other thing. unwittingly, yeah. Uncanny. He doesn't predict anything sinister other than like our own being duped. He doesn't sort of predict like a apocalyptic result of that. Like they're going to come get us or I don't know not, not that I remember. No, he, he doesn't. But I, think, and... I think Valet actually
0: uh-huh, kind of moves further in that direction. He definitely
1: develops this thesis in all kinds of directions.
0: So Valet, we might want to spend a little more time on just because he's just so, and he's alive still and he's relevant. Yeah. So he's this guy who grows up in France, has some, some encounter with the UFO, like he saw something as a kid or something. What does he study, astronomy or astrophysics? It's some kind of physics degree, yeah. And then he just he has this insight that the real place to be is the United States, that this is where innovation, creativity, is gonna happen, so he comes over here and he finds himself, he gets involved with these, he gets a PhD, I'm not sure, I can't even remember what that's in, but he um, he's interested in um, UFOs since childhood and he reads this guy, Aimé Michel's book, Mysterio Auger Celeste in the summer of 1958, starts a correspondence with the guy, mm-hmm. Um, comes to America and he he gets a PhD in Chicago at Northwestern uh, in computer science, which is probably, you know, cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And he meets J. Allen Hynek, who interesting character in his own right, who's one of the first UFO researchers to have connections to the government, um Heineck also, interesting enough, was an anthroposophist. Um and then he becomes this uh he becomes involved in the creation of ARPANET, which will be the precursor of the internet, right? Stanford uh, research institute, which was looking at government program looking at these paranormal abilities with an attempt to I guess weaponize them or use them. Right. for intelligence. And I think one of the things that Kripal would say and his certainly his uh, student, what's her name? Uh, Basulka, mm. that when you're talking about um, remote viewing, you're talking about um, something like telepathy or precognition, right. that these faculties at Sanford Research Institute were studying Were faculties exhibited by mystics, different telekinesis by location.
1: Yeah. Um, Some interesting results reported in this book about that, like people who could see the Russian submarine in a particular bunker and, uh, the government being like, or the, the people running the program being like, that's not possible. They don't have such a submarine and it's not near water, blah, blah, blah. And then six months later, lo and behold,
0: there's a secret submarine installation,
1: yeah. and yeah, yeah, no.
0: There's a lot of this, um, and it, it makes this interesting saying uh, quote statement here somewhere that he kind of walks away from a bunch of his government contracts or jobs because he didn't. He, I don't know. He was embarrassed of it, or they weren't serious enough, or mm-hmm. their motivations were wrong, or something. It wasn't true research, right? But then he, you know, he makes the move where he starts uh, taking seriously, much like John Mack would do later, the accounts of people that actually have encounters with these beings. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Meaning and, abductees, right? Beg your pardon? Meaning UFO abductees. Yeah,
0: UFO abductees, and um, he'll be the first person to um, to say that this really bears uncanny resemblance to fairy
1: lore and folklore in the world. Right, right, which is a very interesting connection, and in a way. So my context for this kind of thinking is like watching the show, ancient aliens and laughing because there's such wackadoodle stuff on that show. Yeah, <laughs> um,
0: yeah. uh,
1: but all, all of the people on that show, of course, are reading alien phenomenon is legitimate. And then rewinding the tape and saying everything that looks like alien phenomenon is actually aliens. It's like physical craft UFO.
0: Yeah. the So-called <laughs> ETH hypothesis, hypothesis. Yeah. This advanced technology nuts and bolts technology.
1: Mehu said, uh, sorry, not Mehu. Uh, Valet says that that there is this match between those experiences, but it's just as likely that the UFOs are fairies as the other way around. Yeah. That, like, there's no reason to think that fairies have physical craft anymore than to think that um, UFOs are from the land of the Fae or whatever. It's like right. these maybe are related experiences that are being interpreted by us according to our like what we can, are able to accept of them, like maybe in a modern scientific age, like this kind of experience looks like a spacecraft, whereas in a more rural setting where the forests and the wild are very present on our borders, that maybe the fairy is kind of more of a way to interpret it, so. Yeah, said, so we're getting
0: uh, yeah. to a consciousness culture thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. Right, culture shapes our consciousness, but then there's the experiences that we interpret back through culture, and yeah.
0: Right. And then he, he makes these very interesting points that um, that the absurd is really present, and that the absurd sometimes seems to be very likely to show up with the more credible experiencer. The guy who has more credibility might have the more absurd thing. Yeah, um, it's not in this book, but. There's a story about a guy named Joe Simonton. I think it was out west somewhere. And this guy, I think he was retired military, but he was just that guy. He was the guy who mows his lawn and has an American flag and all that. Sure. And he's in his backyard, broad daylight, and he watches a spaceship come and land. Mm -hmm. And this small person, humanoid, dark-skinned, comes out and seems to be having a a pitcher of water or something and he seems to want water uh-huh. and so Joe Simington goes in his house and he fills the thing up with water and he brings it back and <laughs> the little man takes it into the spaceship and Joe says there's windows and he can see that they're cooking. They use the water to cook and then when they come out he he gives them, the little man gives Joe two pancakes <laughs> thank you, I guess. And then he flies uh, yeah, for, for sure, thank you. And Joe Simonton actually gives these pancakes to some NASA or something. <laughs> nice. And these pancakes are analyzed. He didn't eat them? He didn't eat them, this is interesting. I,
1: I would've ate them. Well, no, <laughs> so, no, um, when So,
0: after they get analyzed, they are ordinary pancakes. Except they have no salt. And in fairy lore, fairies Uh, cannot eat salt. Right. And in fairy lore, you should never, ever, ever eat something offered to you by a fairy. Oh, that's right. You can get get trapped. You can get trapped. Yeah. So now here's an experience where fairies and UFOs are... And I don't think Joe Simonton knew fairy lore. Right. So it just gets stranger and stranger. So maybe Joe Simonton's read some science fiction novel and watched some TVs and of course he's aliens. Yeah. But, but also fairies are often described as
1: small dark people. Right. Yeah. This is the, the I mean, this is the thing. <laughs> And that is exactly the kind of story where if you're sort of in a rational worldview, you go, well, he's probably crazy, or he made some pancakes and left the salt out and sent him to a lab. Or there's lots of ways to explain that that don't involve becoming vulnerable to the idea that um, paranormal experiences could happen to us.
0: Right. right?
1: Yeah. But, but I do think there's a level of vulnerability to 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 this, where if you're gonna if you're gonna adopt this. Uh, frame of mind that valet and Kerpal and fort suggest you are subjecting yourself to yeah there might be monkeys on the sun but here's this lady who can do everything or i'm going to be the guy with pancakes and i'm going to live and die by that right
0: or i'll seduce you by reading the m in your hand so... <laughs> yeah um yeah, but you see what Valet does with this, which is just so much more interesting, is he um, he says, Well, we have pancakes, we have physical evidence, we have the right. testimony of credible witness that is not the same that there was actually a fully material three-dimensional spaceship right. that you could fit in the hangar. Right. So, you know, they're really suggesting that there is some kind of the hyphen again yeah it's not purely psychic and it's not purely material but it seems to participate in both worlds sure
1: right and you can't really how do you explain something like that if the you know if there was radar or whatever or sighting by fighter pilot or something that corresponds with somebody's weird report of time loss and abduction and there's like corresponding evidence, but not enough to prove definitively anything. And then this deep subjective experience of that, like defies psychological interpretations in some ways too. Cause yeah, yeah. it sounds crazy, but they're functional and they don't exhibit any other symptoms and et cetera, et cetera.
0: Or well, sometimes um, they acquire aptitudes. Right. So I wish I could remember the name of it. I posted it on RR, but there's a, a recent it's on Amazon um documentary that Villet was involved with about a boy 30 years ago who was a um, gaucho and and um
1: uh,
0: did you hear right. about this? I thought I think I saw the link you posted. Yeah, his father said go out and get the get the cattle, herd the cattle, yeah. and he goes out and he encounters a UFO and he actually goes up into the spaceship. He's actually touched by one of these bees, this one of mm-hmm. And then for the next 40 years of his life, he suffers horribly mm-hmm. because people say he's crazy, he's fairly terrified, and he has this new capacity. And the capacity is he can look at people down in the, in the village or he encounters people and then he'll have dreams about them. And the dreams will come true. Well, literally, things like illnesses, death, marriage, birth. Right. And he's afraid of this wild talent, as Ford would say. And so all these years later, you know, Valet went and saw him when he was 12 when it happened. All these years later, Valet and some other people go back to him and they say, um, what they do is this guy is Guarani, it's a tribe. And they go to the, he's a descendant of the Guarani. He's Europeanized, mestizo or whatever now, but they go to the Guarani and they tell the Guarani elders about this guy. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's um, that's the god. It comes down and he touches people and leaves you with these abilities. Mm. It's a moving documentary because they will take him to the Warani, to the elders, and all that trauma and all that alienation will it'll end. They, they mm. film. It's extremely powerful. Wow, wow, you see. So now you're you got UFOs, but you've got an aboriginal indigenous culture yeah you've got a western european intellectual whatever you want to call it L.A., mediating he is actually mediating the phenomena for the experiencer and then having a positive outcome right it's really wild the more you you know the more i think about it
1: well it sounds like the the healing bit I mean, it's an awesome experience, but also the healing bit of it was like, I don't know about normalizing it, but like integrating it more fully into a cultural sensibility. Yeah. Right. Like, unfortunately, I for it... him,
0: there is an older culture that could do that.
1: Right. Right. Because I think what
0: Paul and company are doing is they're trying to push us into a newer, a new paradigm that doesn't abandon the science, takes the best of it. But well, you well, see, this is where Valet gets really weird. because Valet suggests <laughs> that there is a schedule of reinforcement. That's literally his
1: words. And there, there's something sinister about it all. He's very much like Fort in that we're being groomed to by this thing. And it's it's messing with us. And there's a right? schedule of reinforcement. Right. It comes so regularly to poke. And yeah. The yeah. He, I got a quote about that. Um, on 158, he says, although UFOs are quite, still quite real, they are no longer probably extraterrestrial and they are almost certainly not literally true. Deception and absurdity are part of what the phenomenon is communicating. They are designed or even staged to confuse us, to baffle us, to shock us into another level of consciousness and culture. So it's like the whole point is to fuck people up. <laughs> Make them completely baffled. And, like, and that's not just like it, you know, there's a possibility that this gap between experience and cultural understanding is just naturally problematic. But he's saying, no, it's there on purpose. It's, it's coming to you as like pancakes from a flying saucer or a guy who touches you and, and fucks with your dreams because they want you to suffer and they want to twist the, uh, the consciousness of the culture in these little, by these little surgical interventions. Right. So he's attributing like an age not, a, not just an agency, but like a like a like a strategy
0: to- Yeah, so it's definitely a strategy. That's where him and Ford are the same. Right. Though there's also this place where in one of his books, he seems to suggest, and I guess Valet would know. He seems to suggest that there are intelligence agencies or other players down here who have some sort of inside understanding of this right and want to also play with it for their own ends right which is so x-files
1: it's so (laughs) x-files it's very like um what are they up to and what's real and why are they is it aliens or are they just american spacecraft experimental stuff are they just trying to pretend that there's aliens like that whole like that whole loop
0: yeah they are here's uh, on 159.
1: They are designed or even staged to yeah. confuse us. Right, right. And then later on 171, I think this is Paul now. The absurdity of the extraterrestrial explanation, in other words, is a kind of intentional ruse or cloaking technique that allows the phenomenon to accomplish its real work, which is symbolic and mythological. Right. It's a, an interpretive phenomenon again. It's that sort of third sense of impossibility, author of impossibility that's like trying to make large scale cultural interventions um, under the guise of alien invasion or under the guise of fairies or under the guise of whatever it happens to be at the time.
0: Yeah, and there's you know he kind of points out it here when he when they reference young, there's there's a certain school of thought that says, with the enlightenment with the rationalism and materialism with the banishing of the fairies Mm -hmm. they they're still here they just this is the return of the repressed if you will right and because we are so entrenched in this other world view it can't but be violent or
1: absurd right um to shake us out of the frame of mind that we're in yeah
0: Yeah, it's disturbing.
1: Right. Um, He doesn't necessarily say why he thinks there's this grand conspiracy behind it all. It's just like, but the impossibility of interpreting it even is like, um, maybe that's just one way to connect all the dots. I'm not sure. Like, you can't point to actors, obviously, or like people who are, Well,
0: I think he might be able to, but I don't think he wants to talk about that. Um, Oh, right. I mean, there are people right now, like, um, there's a woman who used to be a high-ranking figure in MUFON, the UFO network, you know, when you have an experience, you report it to these people. And she started looking at this thing called Skinwalker Ranch, where there's just a ton of this stuff happening. And Mm -hmm. it's not just UFOs, it's Bigfoot, it's all manner of things. Yeah. And what she starts doing is she starts unpacking who owns this ranch and who are the players involved and who are the people investigating it. And it's this guy, Robert Bigelow and, you know, lo and behold, he has all these sort of NASA slash CIA credentials and that, you know, are they playing with advanced technology Are they, is this a strategy of manipulation? You know, it's just a rabbit hole that, um, Uh, God, this is really hard to talk about because, like, one one of Kripal actually has a critic, Jason Horsley. And Horsley says Kripal became the biographer of ASELN, the human potential movement, where a lot of this thinking and phenomena, you know, remote viewing and yeah. muscle talk. And, and he says that. Their intelligence agencies were there and they were interested and it's well-documented. Tark even admits as much. And he says, Kripal omits it. And Kripal has made a pretty pointed declaration that he will not go down that road. Mm -hmm. That for him, that is an illegitimate intellectual move or research move or something, which is really strange when you think about it, whether no matter where you stand on these things, that the guy who's trying to be open to all the stuff
1: would be closed to that one thing. Government involvement or intentionality behind these experiences. Yeah, and yet
0: we have all this evidence of cults. You know, here's here's one for you. Some of the biggest remote viewers were high-ranking Scientologists, Ingo Swann and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So we do have these cults that are manipulating people that that play with these occult faculties wild talents or something you know so there's there's just layers and layers in here
1: right um, right yeah so he definitely like admits I mean, that kind of thinking, like, through the yeah sure like but a uh, kirk paul in his defense admits the kind of conspiratorial thinking into this book in the summary of valet who is very much like Something's behind this. Something's behind this, it's yeah, not, and it's sinister.
0: He but. does. But he but Valet seems to drop it, as does Kripal, which, you know, that's fine, I get it.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I, there's yeah. not like a, just like, can I prove that there was a UFO with pancakes? No. Can I prove that there are, there's some sort of singular agency and coordinated effort behind all of these various phenomena. No, I, I can't prove that either, right? Well, but if you use the comparative method, you can stack like you, you can, can have say, the corkboard. Robert Bigelow shows up here, 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 and here. This man right. Russell Park shows up here, 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 and here. Right. And now you have the corkboard with the yarn, and you're like trying to explain to people. Yeah. Which is yeah. <laughs> fine. Yeah. It's
0: dangerous for you, but I like to live in a world. <laughs>
1: It's not, yeah, that part Maybe. of it, I mean, it's all interesting, but it's not, so, like, you can go so far down that road that you're convinced that you understand things that I think are by nature, um, at least they are in this book, is by nature, they, they're not meant to be understood.
0: Or at least they're not meant to be understood according to any capacity that we presently have.
1: Right. So, I mean, Right. The, the, you know, the, the conspiracy becomes the replacement for indeterminatism in a way the, the conspiracy like, becomes or the
0: conspiracy the thinking the indeterminatism or determinism it's the, the like story. i can
1: figure this out by showing you who is really behind it right
0: the conspiracy theory becomes the more prosaic explanation actually right we can't explain it through science
1: or religion, so we're gonna explain it this way. That's right. I think And that's in a right. way is it's kind of a, well, I guess this is maybe a segue. It's like a stopping concept in a way.
0: It is a stopping concept. It's also, um, I don't know, you know I'm, I'm convinced that there's something now where um, that because all the certainties are thrown up for grabs, you know, identity and economy and brick-and-mortar stores and sure. whatever what you thought was politically true or whatever yeah. um, the past is that now these rabbit holes are everywhere and they're reality holes and they're they're not they're not really quite what they were 15 years ago where it was some weird guy on his computer geeking out on websites now it's there's hundreds of thousands if not millions of people geeking on the same websites and sure. acting in the world according to
1: that sure storming the capitol building and shit like that yeah right so it's um yeah what's going on yeah let's move to may host, i think yeah right so yeah. that who's the guy who has the stopping concept concept um which maybe we should explain but this guy is like he sort of inspires valet but he comes last in the book he's sort of a ufologist but also is into animal magnetism like we discussed before yep um and he's he also has a kind of theory of history not that's quite the same as forts but he says you know when we discovered animal magnetism that was like an important breakthrough that then culture turned its back on. Domesticated sort of,
0: if you it, will.
1: Yeah, domesticate it, rationalized it away, turned it from um, mesmerism to, to hypnosis, to psychotherapy, um, and then develops a set of stop concepts, which I and it must sound better in French, I'm not sure, but it's like concepts that explain the phenomenon well enough um, and also, sort of represent like rational breakthroughs in thought about how the world works. But they sort of, they sort of offer some part of the insight of magnetism, for example, but then sort of uh, prevent further investigation back into the source. Right. So,
0: psychoanalysis so like, served to do that to magnetism.
1: Right. The idea of the subconscious now can explain ev- all of these things well, you're just having a neurotic reaction that's a repressed material, and, right? Right. And,
0: and yet there are these cases where Freud was so attuned to what was going on with his clients and it was so beyond the intellectual that you, know, you had to admit that telepathy was as good an explanation as anything else. Yeah, yeah, right. Something was being transferred between us through cords of what a Renaissance magician would call sympathy. Mm-hmm. Correspondence, right?
1: Yeah, but that those aren't the pieces of Freud, but they get the greater uptake into the rational culture, no. right? No. It's the it's the yeah. There's a subconscious, and there's dreams, and we're comfortable with all that, and yeah. so now we can we can navigate weird experiences by sort of re- referencing this, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't does he? I don't remember other stop concepts like that from him, but that was kind of the. That's the gist of how they work. Right.
0: It's like we want to close the hermeneutic loop of meaning or something.
1: Yeah. In a way oh, there's that's, this... Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off.
0: In a way that's safe.
1: Right. Yeah. There's also this piece to him that says, like, the act of describing something like the subconscious also constructs the subconscious.
0: Right. And I think that's where we're getting close to the authors of the impossible. Right. So on page 211, he writes, um, one is not able to envisage the UFO phenomena independently from our consciousness. What is more, there can be no question of eliminating that part which the human spirit adds to it. It is on the contrary, an essential component mm-hmm. of the phenomenon. So it's, it's not merely that I'm interpreting the phenomena with the concepts I have at hand.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's, there's more to that, that those concepts are contributing to a reality. Right. We, an the thing that troubles me sometimes is I read this stuff and I feel like it's really Kantian that you know, there's the thing in itself out there that you can never fully know Right. You know, all you have are these categories that you can know it through, and that's the most you can know. Right. But what this seems to be suggesting is no, those categories you bring to it have a more creativity, more of a contribution to the real mm-hmm. than we think. Right. Maybe as much as the thing itself. Right. So Owen Barfield does this really wild thing with that. He says, let's just look at a rainbow. He says, for a rainbow to appear, to exist, you need the sunlight at a certain angle, a certain amount of moisture in the air, Mm -hmm. and a human observer at a certain angle to those other two things. Right. And then you have the manifestation of a rainbow. And nobody would say a rainbow doesn't really exist. Right. But you right. need that human consciousness. You know, the real question becomes, I guess you could say, are there unobserved rainbows? Or...
1: Oh, right. Like if no one can perceive it. You can it only,
0: it only is- imagine a rainbow as
1: if there was a human observer there. Right. Otherwise, it's not a rainbow. It's just light moving through water. At a, That's right. Space. So in these in this way, like the UFO phenomenon or whatever else is also like that. There's a thing, we don't know what it is, and yeah. there's a human observer, and there's all this cultural information and all this sort of second order other reality information, whatever it is. And the combination of those things becomes what it is.
0: It almost wonders if the real question is: are there or the real is there? knowledge that's attainable that would suggest, what are the conditions necessary for there to be an experience of the UFO? It, are we missing something there?
1: Right. Like um, what's the water, and what's the light, and what's the know, angle that we can reproduce know. it?
0: But of course, that way of thinking, the reproducibility is to lapse into a very Newtonian scientific.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, then it lends itself to, um, the conspiracy angle, which is like somebody knows, and they're yeah. fucking all around with it on that ranch, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's that that angle. So it it's like domesticating it in like a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't know. Maybe it is.
0: Well, there is that guy. Um... Shit. I wish I remember his name now. It begins with a P. But he had that, they called it the God Helmet or something. But he had this, you could, you can uh, brain, uh, brains with electronic frequencies, and people would have mystical experiences. They would see UFOs, you know. Right. So that's led to a lot of
1: speculation and such. But. Would you wear that hat? Sure. Yeah, me too.
0: <laughs> I'd wear that yeah. hat. I'm not sure I'd play with a Ouija board. <laughs> It's <laughs> probably a whole show in itself. Like why like
1: why one and not the other? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder you can't buy those hats just like on the public market, can you? He didn't like make a do it at home. <laughs> What's his name? God, I wish I could remember it. I think it was in Canada. You could can look it up easy Yeah. Um So yes. is like that, right? He's like magnetism. We stopped it with these concepts. We created weird blockages and interpretations. But actually, at base, people have these weird powers that, you know, if we didn't keep putting roadblocks in our way. We might be able to access.
0: Yeah, and he's saying that that we there's something that wants to resist these things. So on one two twenty one, he does define these stock concepts. He says hmm. they are stock concepts concept bourgeois are notions, which no doubt possessing an incontestable heuristic power have at the same time, the strategic function that of limiting by tacit convention, an obscure domain of experience, thus stopping the flight of thought into the unknown. You're there to stop. And Kripal goes on and says, Psychoanalysis is a kind of cultural shock zone before a psychical challenge, especially convincing.
1: Yeah, if you don't have religion to to categorize things for you, if you're secularized and you don't have the church to say it was the Virgin Mary, or it was angel whatever, or it was the devil, then you need some other, you need a secular source to kind of catch those experiences in a way that locates them and, and, and integrates them into culture, I guess. Right. More generously. Um, just like the, the guy you were talking about in the documentary, he gets his shakeup experience. He doesn't fit into, he sort of gets dislocated by it, culturally dislocated. And then by weaving it back into something that makes sense in his culture, he becomes grounded and healed. And it feels yeah. like, like maybe these stop concepts are like, Popping up where religion used to be in order to do that same service.
0: So I guess if you don't have the
1: stock concept, what's the
0: what what might happen?
1: Just fall Sanity? right? Well, yeah, because or like a kind of just extreme dislocation that is going to be neurotic at least, right?
0: Alienation, rejection by your peers,
1: right? And then that comes with its own set of symptoms, right? Yeah.
0: And that's what happened to the Gaucho.
1: Right, until he could be like caught and brought back in.
0: But it wasn't a stop concept that brought, well, maybe it was, I don't know.
1: And this is me taking liberties with the concept of, of stop concept. I think Mehus means it as like, we should be seeing the full reality of this, but we're being blocked by something like psychoanalysis. Well, I'm sort mean, of taking a step well, back and saying, religion, psychoanalysis, even conspiracy theory, science, ancient beliefs, those are all ways of incorporating experiences like this into some kind of sensible system and some kind of cultural um, set or cultural network that then grounds me and relocates me again, right? Yeah. I can be located, I can have an experience and be located in my church or in a conspiracy theory forum or in um, this ancient way with this ancient group, or et cetera, so, right?
0: so a stop concept is more an inevitable consequence of
1: interpretation
0: that is built into interpretation. Uh,
1: right. I think this is what this is kind of what I'm the idea I'm playing with right now. Yeah, is that you well, have, you have to do something you have to do something to make it make sense. And it's yeah. better to make it make sense in a way that integrates you, right? Yeah. Better for you, probably. Right.
0: Well, you you know, one thinks of Jung who, I don't know if you looked at any of this, but this book just came out a couple years ago called um, Catafalque. It's about the Red Book. Mm -hmm. This guy, Peter Kingsley, who's troubling and interesting all at once. Kingsley says that if you talk to Jung's secretary, who was a man named Hull, RFC Hull, Hull would say, well, you had to remember, you always had to remember which Jung you were speaking to because there was a young number one, which Jung would call the spirit of the times, who had to be this Kantian scientist who had uh, to be acceptable to whatever, right? The psychological world, psychoanalytic society, the press. And then there was young number two, who was the one who was, he called him the spirit of the depths, who was swimming freely in these dangerous places. Yeah. Um, Wow. And so he said Jung would literally be different people. He would contradict himself depending on who he was talking to. Right.
1: And had the privilege and the freedom to to be that way.
0: Right.
1: He's not like the gaucho who's spurned by everybody because he's like that. He's like still this cool doctor.
0: Yeah, he played the game. Yeah. But he didn't let the Red Book be public, you know, would be published for you know, sat in the vault for 75 years or something. Right. He said they're not going to get
1: it. Right. In between, he published all this work in the Scientific Register that's, I think... But you would later,
0: kind of, Jung you know, number 2 would say that all came from that period of time when they said I was crazy.
1: Right, right. And and in a way, it then becomes an author of The Impossible, right? Because he's taking that Jung number 2 insight and, like, bridging it into the Jung number one interface <laughs> with culture, right? Yeah, for the rest of us. Intervening I mean. in consensual reality to like- But the way life. it
0: landed in the Jungian world is really wild because there are a lot of Jungians that are trying to, for Kingsley to domesticate it. Whereas right. Jung said, oh, whereas Kingsley's like, oh, no, 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 he, he, he's, he's going to the very roots of, of, of Western culture and right. diagnosing our failure and so on. Um, so one of the final things that Matus does yeah. that's just really striking is on 244, he goes. He's talking about this interesting uh, anthropologist Ernesto Di Martino. Um, Di suggested that the data of ethnography, folklore, and psychical research point to quote the paradox of culturally conditioned nature. In all its embarrassing implications. So that's that's an idea that's gaining currency, which is our experience of nature is not following some uh, upward trajectory in science where we're really perceiving nature more accurately as time goes, but rather our perception of nature changes as paradigm shifts. Uh-huh. And paradigms don't shift because of accumulation of data. They shift because when you, when you start going really far down this one road, you create the conditions of the anomalies. And then okay. the anomalies will lead everything to shift in another way. Okay. But it's not necessarily a more accurate way. Oh, that's fascinating. And yeah. so Thomas Kuhn, who's you know rationalist as hell, he wrote The Structure of Scientific revolutions, right, yeah. he points out in there that Uranus, the planet Uranus, you know, when, when I don't know anything about astronomy, but apparently one way you know the difference between a star and a planet is planets move. And Kuhn points out that astronomers had been looking right in the sky, had the technology to see Uranus moving. Mm-hmm. It was not that, 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 that nobody was seeing it and it was waiting to be discovered. It was rather people were seeing it but their conceptual baggage prevented them from actually seeing it.
1: Okay. Understanding it as a planet rather than as a star in this
0: case. Or they're understanding it as a star rather than a planet. Okay, sure. right, yeah. Um so that I think is really 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 fascinating.
1: I like this idea like you get so headstrong about one thing that than all the data you're leaving behind. The damned facts is what Fort would call the them. All facts. the things you've rejected and left out, they just sort of hang out over here until boop, this doesn't make sense in your worldview anymore because you're all the way down this path, right? And I
0: think in a way, the damned facts are what's been driving us on a, on a certain level around recovery. Sure. I mean, the damned facts in recovery that I'm to have the hardest time with is Alexander and company t- telling me, and I'm seeing it again and again, about all the all the recovery that happens independently of anything, right? The so- so-called spontaneous recovery. Yep, um, that's a damned fact for me, right? Um, but you know, there are a lot of facts in my experience that don't work anymore, like disease or right. individual
1: pathology or. ways of interpreting that don't fit what you're experiencing or seeing. They function, right? I think like the disease concepts, I mean, we could really spin out on this, maybe we should be wrapping up, but like this, the disease concept like serve this great purpose of like, it's not a moral failure. Yeah. And it justifies a sense of uh, like a certain kind of action right? A certain kind of, I certainly justifies all this treatment that is debatably worth worth, but that's better than just sort of castigation and further alienation and shame, right? So disease model does a certain thing, but it doesn't really fit what the problem is. And also still locates the issue within the body instead of in the soul of the, of the alcoholic, right?
0: And, And the individual
1: body, right?
0: The, the, defective or broken body right the abnormal
1: body right yeah i think there's damned facts in the sociology of addiction and there's damned facts in the spiritual experiences we experience in recovery and there's all kinds of weird stuff
0: well and maybe just maybe in line with croy paul and and all this hyper modernity is the damn facts are they're here now They're not you're not gonna be able to insulate yourself from damn facts like you were just a few years
1: ago. Right. Right. It's on your Facebook feed.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. That was great.
0: Yeah, that was fun. Next one's gonna be good too. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.